thank you for coming on. I wanted to bring some of the boys who are part of the culture, you know, who are real deep in the culture and have appreciation for Afro and Sudanese culture, just to bring on the pod and have a quick discussion on what we think what we think needs to happen in, in our culture a bit more and what, what we think others can contribute. So I think you and Bidda are pretty much the right minds to get this ball rolling. So I'll get Doc to just quickly introduce himself and give us a background of what what his ideologies are and what he feels needs, needs to be done and where we can go from there. Um, yeah, hello. My name is uh, Bidit Doc. Um, Alfred brought me on to uh, this podcast because we've known each other for a long time and we've always had deep conversations and I'm that sort of person that likes to talk about deep things and what I'm very passionate about is our people. When I was younger, I didn't really care very much, but now that I'm growing older, I... I'm starting to care more about our people and my interest is in things that aren't that go unnoticed especially amongst our community so I want to elaborate on that today and yeah Yeah John brother just give us a quick background on yourself and what your ideologies are and what you hope to contribute to the discussion Yeah so first of all, thank you, Alfred, for bringing me on board. It's a great idea. Um, Alfred has always been someone who switched on. Uh, both Alfred and Vidit have always been switched on. Um, and they've always been just asking questions about the world, about our people. And um, so when Alfred invited me to jump on, I said yes, most definitely. Uh, so just a bit about myself. Uh, my name is John Marsha. I'm spoken word artist, actor, and an aspiring filmmaker. And I'm someone who's just passionate about uh, community development and uplifting our people. And I try to do that through my creativity, uh, but then also through actually being involved in the community. So professionally, I'm a media and communications officer for a community support group in Melbourne called Janubi Windham. And we offer a lot of recreational employment and educational programs to South Sudanese youth and their families. So the topics that we're about to explore today, they're very close to heart and they're things that I sort of deal with and am exposed to on a regular basis. But yeah, Alfred, thanks for bringing me on board. No, that's great. That's great. Uh, so just on that as well, have you always been passionate about Sudanese culture, Afro culture? Or was that sort of an epiphany that you had one day and said, hold on a second, this is something special, this is something really dear to me? Is that the case or talk to us a bit about that? Um, so you guys remember, remember um, Liverpool Church, I would always rave on about all things Afrocentric from like, you know, history and things that my father would tell me to even challenging the pastor when the pastor said um, we shouldn't bring drums to the church. And I'm like, what are you talking about? This is something that is um, embedded in our African cultures. And I think God would be accepting of this. So I've always been interested in African history um, and stories. And I think somebody who sparked that interest is my father. Um, he would always, you know, tell me stories about um, historical figures in both Sudan and just the broader African community. And my favorite thing to do during my childhood was just sit next to my dad after he came home, uh, 
home from work and just talk about Anyanyawan. And for those of you who don't know, it's the South Sudanese Civil War. And my father would always talk to me about why the war came about, uh, the different heroes and figures that spearheaded the war. And he would really paint Sudanese history in a very colorful way. You know, he'd say, for instance, William Nguyen uh, is a Nuer man who is a general, and he was the driving force bef behind the military men. He was the thinker. He would devise things. He had military experience. Whereas somebody like John Garang is more, more of an intellectual who studied in America and came back home and was sort of like the mastermind behind the movement. So all those stories, all those histories, I always, I was always fascinated by it because my father sparked that interest. And so when I came to Australia, um, you know, I just went down that path of like Googling African history, discovering people, and I just built on from that. Right. So your so father. To answer your question. Yeah. To answer your question, in a way, I've always been interested in African history and all things black and Afrocentric, but then. When I became of age, I started to become more proactive and do my own research. Mm, right. Yeah. So your father instilled Afrocentric values in you very early, which you're actually very lucky for most of us. We didn't, right? <laughs> all, all, the, all the Afro people walking around, especially in Australia, don't have those values instilled in them. So I think you were, you were a little bit luckier to, <laughs> to get that. How about you, Doc? Where did your enlightenment come from? Um... My story is a bit different, right? Um, so I started off, um, my interests were in youth. I used to work with youth, um, troubled youth, and um, that was my passion and stuff. I didn't really care much about the Sudanese culture. I was also very religious in the past. So I was, um, yes, I would spend most of my time in the church reading religious, um, like a lot of religious content. <laughs> and... It never really crossed my mind um, to dig into our, in, dig into my culture and to dig into where I came from. It never really interested me until I would say four years ago, when I started to dig in and make more research, uh, do more research um, to who I am, pretty much. Like because people don't really think about who they are and how they became the way they are at the moment. They don't think about their childhood. They don't think about where they came from. And yeah. we're all immigrants, right? We came to this country, uh, had to learn English, had to uh, indoctrinate ourselves into a new culture, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, like four years ago, I would say, our interest sparked in me because I started to look into the truth and I like, I would elaborate, I'm going to elaborate on that. We have this idea of our people that's in everything pretty much, uh, a subconscious idea that's ingrained in people, right? Um, and it could be good or bad. We think that Africa has never contributed anything to the world as a whole, right? Like most people think that Africa is just... Like, they don't have anything significant to show to the world. Yeah. And that's what I thought. Until I started to dig in and to discover more about Africa and 
yeah, just I have more passion for it now. Before I didn't really it was due to Christianity, like and this is my opinion, you know. Some people might not agree, but Christianity it, it made me feel bad about my culture. It really made me, and I'll let I'll, I'll let you know why. Um, a lot of the things that I learned in the past, right, about the African cultures was that it was evil. They would practice things like voodoo. They would do things that are just wild, things that are primitive. And me, I couldn't really have pride in anything like that anything to do with something like that so i thought i sub subconsciously thought that we were inferior as a people and you know that that's 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 a big statement to say but there's a lot of people who feel that way and i i i i'll say it again it's a subconscious sort of way of thinking it's not something that you're aware of and as i started to realize why i felt that way and to dig into Africa and myself and my culture and where I came from and when I st- and now I have more pride in it when I start to dig into it and look into the truth why how how good like I actually I enjoy my culture now and I see the good things that are in it mm-hmm. and yeah we're going to speak more about it but that's just a little bit of how I came to um know about the culture and to enjoy it and to have an interest in it. Yeah, it's really, it's really, really powerful. The fact that religion somewhat influences how our view of our culture and how obviously we know Christianity is and all pretty much Abrahamic religions all somehow influence our idea of Afro, Afrocentric values and how we view ourselves, we we all understand that in Arabian countries, they still use that word. We, we all know what that word is right. That is to refer to us as slaves whenever they refer to black folk, right? A bit, a bit, We all we all know that. We all know that. Now, let's start off. I wanted to start off with a very popular topic that's been that's been going on recently, and that is the good old CRT, critical race theory. That's been going on um, the discussion around critical race theory. Um, yeah, we'll start off with you, John. What are, what are your thoughts? What's been what's been going on? Because it seems like it's been more of hysteria, and it's just and Australia has just imported what the discussion that the United States has been having into into the Australian discussion in the context of Aboriginal Aboriginal peoples here, right? What what have, what are your thoughts? Um, my thoughts are this. Uh, critical race theory, um, from my understanding, I think it does it does more harm than good. Um, or if anything, it just does good because it educates people on how racism is more than a micro thing. It's not just prejudice that happens on a personal micro level with everyday in- interactions between people. It's actually tied to systemic systems of racism that plays out in politics. Um, it plays out in the social policies that we have. It, it plays out at a much higher level. And I think when this academic framework came about, 
it had the objective because it, it came out in like the late uh, late 60s, early 70s, and it was by it was it was sort of it came about through the work of black activists and academics who said, listen, we are people who have um, firsthand in interactions with racism, and it's much more of a complex issue than people make it out to be. So in essence, what they did was they connected the dots and they tried to show society that this is a much bigger issue. So in theory, uh, critical race theory, I think is good. But in practice, like all good things, it can be misinterpreted and the practice can be counterproductive. Is that, so even, that, is that even a, a practical application of critical race theory? Is that even possible? There is. There is. There is. It's happening. Right. It's happening in things like um, diversity training in classrooms, workplace, and it plays out in the in it plays out in the way that people in, interact with one another. So I'll give you an example. Um, a few months back, there was an incident where I think it was like a diversity officer or somebody who came into the school to educate the kids about critical race theory and the importance of understanding your privilege as a white person. Now that person who came into the school took it way overboard and made all the white males stand up. You know, if you're a white heterosexual male, we need you to stand up. Not only acknowledge your privilege, but we need you to apologize. <laughs> right? They singled out those students and made them do that. Right, yeah, yeah, that, that, that is discriminatory in a way, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, in, so that's, that's, that's a misinterpretation of critical race theory, and that's, a, and that's not the ideal way to practice it. The ideal way to practice it is this. Let's go beyond the symbolic gestures of, you know, bad whitey, bad whitey, stand up and acknowledge your privilege. Let's go beyond the symbolism and all of that and actually tackle the root cause of the issue that critical race theory points out, right? What it should look like in practice is changing policy, changing, um, changing the, the racist practices that leads to black people always being shut out of institutions. Like those things that are much more higher up, not the petty micro interactions. So I think in Australia, the, the conservatives, especially um, One Nation, they just look at the practice and they look at the absurd examples whereby well-meaning well white people do the most. You know, They just look at those examples, like the example that I gave and say, that's critical race theory. It's bad. It's terrible. But in actuality, it's okay. What I can, what I can compare it to to better illustrate my point is this. There are certain aspects of, of a lot of ideas, whether it's religious ideas or ideas that people came up with, right? Somebody can read the Bible or, or a wonderful idea that is, good in that is good in theory, but then misinterpret it and practice it the wrong way, right? And then the broader society will look at that person and say what that person represents or whatever they've been reading is corrupt, when in actuality that's not the case. So that's what's happening with critical race theory. People are looking at the practices and the bad examples when they should be looking at the theory itself. Mm. So um, my stance on the theory is that 
It does a lot of good. It's just we need uh, we just need to look at how it's being practiced and start making changes along those lines. Right. I, I think it's it it's I, that's actually a powerful analysis you've just given. But I think it's not even you can't possibly teach critical race theory to to kids from k to 12 even it's a it's a it's a college level university level study you're not going to have them read scholarly activists legal (laughs) actual legal practitioners right it's it's ridiculous you you would have to reduce it and teach it in an age-appropriate manner right but even that as well you're going to miss nuance a lot of nuance which is where all these conservatives and anybody who's discrediting critical race theory as some as any um, any real, real theory, if you want to call it, is is missing the point. Like, if you want to reduce it to the to uh, diversity classes and hiring um, diversity consultants to come and speak in your workplaces and schools, yeah. that, we can't call that critical race theory. I think that's an insult. We'll, we'll call it <laughs> diversity training and leave it at that. I think that's where everybody's messed up as well. That's what I'm saying. People mix mix all these things and label it as critical race theory. Exactly. When, when those examples that I gave and what you were pointing out, I think those things are tied to far left extremism and political Perfect. correctness and cancel culture <laughs> and, and, and things of that nature. But people don't uh, people don't objectively look at that, dissect and say this is this and this is that. They mm. mesh it all together and say this is critical race theory or this is political correctness. Yeah, like like the example you just given, like that that black folk. I don't know if he he must have been black, right, to go and teach critical theory in the school. He went and did the the that's the epitome of extremism. He took a basic premise in a way that it, so far in a, into a place that it makes no sense not to. Why are you having folks, white kids, stand up and and apologize? <laughs> like what does that do you know what i mean like it exactly that's what i mean it's it's at, at, on a, at an a at a proper level you because fundamentally what critical race theory is talking about is institutional and systemic stuff it's not this this is where the problem comes back it comes back to how we've we've been i think it's deliberate we've been trained deliberately trained to recognize racism as individual acts of meanness as you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. it's not act we we people's people don't People's conceptualization of what racism is is not. It's thinking I'm I'm hating on you because of your race. It's so much deeper than that, right? If people look at racial politics, what it is, it's essentially it's a it's biological, right? It's biological differences between races. If I can say you're different from a white folk because your biology is is different all the way down to your IQ because of your race, that's that's racism, right? Take that to another to to what they did in in, in Australia. What what the the curriculum is trying to deny is that even John Howard, if you look in literally documented, John Howard said he did not want reparations to for Indigenous Australians because it would impose guilt on the Anglo Celtic population. It, fam, that's your <laughs> that's your reasoning for for for, for not for not like and that's the problem as well. We're dealing with white guilt, right? At what point do we do we do we say we don't want to, we don't want to make white folks feel uncomfortable because uh, because Aboriginal folks or Afro American folks want certain reparations, right? But I digress. My point is that racism, people's definition of racism, needs to change. It's so it's a lot, it's a lot deeper. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Doc, on this whole idea of racism and critical race theory in schools? Um, in being taught in schools. Um, like I reckon, 
I think any sort of dialogue um, is important, especially when it comes to racism. Um, a lot of things do actually go unnoticed, but I'm gonna play. I'm gonna try to play the devil's advocate a bit, right? So I can see it from a Anglo sort of point of view. If you think about it, right? Because if just say um, with racism, right, and the critical race theory i just want to get this right right they believe that you can justify anything as racism right for the for the critical race theory in in a in a nutshell it's just the idea that racism is more complex than just one individual being racist towards another yeah, it's much mean. more systemic and it has much more layers to it and it's linked to politics, economics, and um, just the way that we govern and run our states. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, I don't think it's something you can really deny. Because uh, for the past, just say, over 100 years, the world has really changed. Not even 100 years, 20 years. The world has, has really, really changed. And the view of society has really, really changed as, as a whole, too. Um, in the past... They had certain laws that, you know, that it wasn't, I'm not going to go there, not with laws, but there was a lot of things in the past that went unnoticed until maybe 2020. You could say even, uh, just say even with George, George Floyd, for example, that was something that impacted the black community um, worldwide pretty much. And it, it kind of forced us to look into the past and how things were handled in the past regarding police, even the laws. Um, uh, yeah, all law, the law as a whole uh, regarding um, how people have been treated and minorities have been treated. So I think that it's not really... I don't think that it's, it's wrong to look to look into the laws if you know what i'm saying and to look into racism as a whole for there's yeah. there's a lot of things that we've missed over time and as as we look through time and we look back we're actually starting to see the problems that we've had because everything is kind of blowing up at the moment and i can also see the wrongs with it because there are people that are saying that there's a lot of things that have been pushed um Push from proportion, if you know what I mean. Like, like it's been um, like there's there's a lot of things you can actually justify as racism that aren't really racist. I get that, I get that to the point. But we can't really dismiss um, racism just to make other people feel better, if you know what I'm what mm -hmm. I'm saying. Amen. But racism, it's 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 a it's a big topic, and it really does have to be discussed. Like. You do need dialogue because if nothing is really discussed and it just goes under the, underneath the surface, one day the carpet will be removed and something has been hidden there that's never been addressed, it's probably going to blow up. And if we want to move forward as, as a race, I say as a human race, because right now the world is coming together. We have the internet, like we're talking to you, John, you're in Melbourne, we're here in Sydney, and... Things people are just coming together. Something can happen in a corner in the other side of the world that everyone will know about it. 
And that's the thing with racism. Um, we've had view, uh, society has had views, especially the West, of races, different sort of races. Um, and we've had, we've had ideas on classes and it's been changing over time and we do have to, we have to communicate about it. So I, I think that there should be a dialogue. That's, that's what I think personally. No, I agree. To, to wrap that topic up as well, it's just hysteria. It's, it's political hysteria that's being created to silence the talk on, the, on, on race in general, to be honest, if you look into it, because most of it is not really what critical race theory is about. But I wanted to talk to you boys about um, counterproductive cultures. And John, you can kick this off as well. And I wanted to talk about what toxic cultures within the Afro community and Sudanese community as well. Do you want to lead us? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, oh, there's a lot. I don't know where to start. Um, <laughs> the good thing about a lot of African cultures is just from my experience and exposure to different African groups, the good seems to sort of, it doesn't outweigh the bad. They balance each other out. So there's a lot of good uh, in terms of African cultures, but there's also a lot of bad. Um, and I will focus more specifically on my very own South Sudanese culture. So um, one thing that I really um, want to take a want to take a collective stance against is um, dowry, the whole system of dowry. Like I know there's been a number of discussions um, about dowry and how it's crippling young people and it's not doing us any good, but I want us to have solution-based solution -based discussions and actually see some sort of step towards eradicating it altogether. Um, this idea that you have to pay to get married is, is absurd. It's absurd to me. And what really gets to me, what really frustrates me is we... On the one hand, right, as Africans and other societies as well, on the one hand, we're moving towards gender equality. So more and more, we're beginning to see uh, African men in the kitchen doing household duties and helping out. And we're beginning to see women have, um, have more rights, right? But what we're not seeing is a change in like the dowry system and there's a way that my mother framed this that made me laugh and made me really think about it differently so this is what she said she said um and my mother is against it by the way so she said i really feel for you and your and your generation john because when you pay the dowry initially when it started yes it was a token of goodwill from the um groom and his family to the bride's family, but over time, it's, it, it, it started to change. Over time, it became a thing of pay more, pay more cows because my daughter is an amazing cook. Pay more cows because my daughter is um, very family-oriented or and will look after your mother. Um, she will braid your sister's hairs. She will do X, Y, and Z. So the price of the dowry would increase, but it's like a it's like a point-based system, and it, and it increases. And if she has a degree, then 
this girl's educated, she's worth more, right? So this is what my mother said. She said, on the one hand, the, the, the expectations for women, it's dropping a bit more. So you're not expected to cook. You're not expected to, because we live in single household units, we don't live in a village anymore. You're not expected to look after your, your, your groom's siblings. You're not expected to do these things, but yet the dowry price is increasing. This is decreasing the expectations for the woman, but the dowry price is, is still increasing. So you, it's almost like, and excuse me to put it in these terms, but it's almost like you're paying for a service that you're not getting. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm all for gender equality, but if we're both going to cook, not just one person, then decrease the dowry for cooking because we're both cooking. Instead of me paying 50 cows, let me pay 25 because I'm also doing half of the cooking. You know what I mean? Uh, or like just things that are practical like that, but that's not happening. What we're seeing is the dowry increase and then you're not really getting what you're expected to get, right? Um, so overall, I just think the dowry system should be eradicated completely and we should just have gender equality where the men are, the women are valued just as much as the men and vice versa. So that's, that's, that's the first aspect of our culture or our tradition that I'm, I'm not happy with. Uh, the second thing would be... Just, just before you go to the second thing, can I just politely disagree with that? I just think... Okay. Fam, I think, I, think you, I think you've missed the essence of, of the dowry system here. You've gone way too practical with this, with this idea here. So what you're saying okay, is... The essence of it... Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, the yeah. essence of it... Yeah. It started off as a good thing, as I said. It's a goodwill, a sign of... Um, a token to say, listen, I appreciate that you've raised um, such a wonderful daughter. Yes. And I want to thank you for, for what you've done. It's a beautiful thing in essence. But, and at the start, right? At the start, there wasn't, from what my uncles have told me, there wasn't a fixed price. Whatever you bring is, is, is acceptable. Do you know what I mean? It's like if somebody comes to your household and says, this is a wonderful house, thank you for hosting a party. I bought some fa uh, favorites box. You're not going to turn around and say, hey, you can do better than favorites. You're going to appreciate whatever the person brings to the party. And that, that idea existed with the dowry system in its early stages. It wasn't a fixed price and it wasn't a thing that was seen as this is a way for me to get money or to get some sort of um, advancement in society. Now, it's, 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 it's changed completely, right? Now it's changed completely. And what young people in the, di in the diaspora are saying is, let's revert it back to what it was. The elders are saying, no, we're not going to revert it back to what it was. So if there's no compromise, we will eradicate it altogether. That's what I think. So what does that look like going back to what it was? How do you, how do you, how do we okay. still appreciate the essence of that and, and still be progressive so, as you want? <laughs> Okay, so in South Africa right now, they have in law. So the dowry system is regulated in South Africa. There's a threshold that you can't go past, and they make it really affordable. And if you are in South Africa, if you're a groom and you want to marry a girl that you love, and her father and her uncles are getting in the way because they're demanding something that is unreasonable, you can take it up to court or you can challenge it legally. And over time, what's happening in South Africa now is people aren't compelled to ask for unreasonable prices for dowry because they know 
it's backed by a legal system. And over time, what you'll see is the dowry system in South Africa will revert back to what it was. Because in South Africa, they had the same issue as, well, as what we're having now, where people began to be a bit more greedy and demand for something that is way too pricey. Mm. So that's what, that's, what it, that's what it would look like within, within the context of the South Sudanese community. Regulate it, make sure there's a cap, there's a threshold that people can't go above hmm. and make sure that it's truly being practiced in a way that that is authentic and and is close to what it originally was hmm. so that's what it would look like in, in my opinion yeah I, I like i like the idea the idea of the what it represents i like it and i think i think continuing it is is yeah. definitely a respect I think it's respectable to the culture to continue it. Probably there are definitely aspects of it that are just really, really weird, like the bidding aspect of it, which is really, really strange to me. But I think overall, it, it's part of the, the deal, right? Don't you think it's it, you appreciate what you pay highly for, what you work hard, what you worked hard for? If you can put that amount, oh, that amount on the table. You're damn well not going to get divorced in the next two years, fam. Look at what's look at the divorce rates out out in the Western societies compared to Sudanese, right? But Alfred, on the flip side, people can be corrupted, and and say and do ter- terrible things to their wives because they feel like she they, they is own them. his property. Like I've heard, um, one of my uncles say to one of the aunties. Respect yourself. I, I paid this amount for you. Where do you think you're going? And it's always sort of like, it's always something that's going to be over the head of like the uh, bride, you know? Like as a, as a thing that's always used to sort of put her in check. A sense of ownership. I, yeah, <laughs> ownership, you know? And the whole concept of having to, having to pay to be with somebody that you love, it doesn't sit well with me at all, you know? It doesn't. Yeah, it no, just, I get you. I get you. I get you. Yeah, and it, and it makes it harder for you to leave the marriage because if you're in an unhappy marriage, whether it's the bride or the groom, uh, um, on the groom's side, he'd feel like, I paid a ton for this. Mm. Let me try and not get divorced. Mm. On the bride's side, she might say, my parents paid a great deal for this. And so, sorry, my husband paid a great deal for me. I need to act accordingly. So I've seen... I've witnessed a lot of people remain in toxic relationships because, you know, because of because of the dowry system essentially. Yes. That's just one aspect of why people stay in toxic relationships in our culture. Um, yeah. Look, I I agree with you. I actually agree with you, John. Like the way I see it, right? Mm. When two people get married, two people that love each other, the what they should do is. They need they need to start off their relationship in a good in a in a good foot, right? They need to walk into the door rightly, right? But how can you do that when you already started off in debt? Correct. Like I, I know I know a lot of men, right, that they paid dowry and they really, really struggled. And what does that do? It creates stress. Right? So you're working hard here trying to pay um this dowry and whatever and that's just one little problem but imagine you're going through other things in your life and it becomes like a build-up so then you're you're paying all this money and yeah imagine you, you even end up having problems with um your wife and then that's another problem 
that's very i i say this because it's a it's a common thing you know in relationships people argue people have problems you know and you sort it out and you move on you know that's how you get stronger that's how your relationship becomes stronger but when a person is in debt and you have all these other issues you know and it just becomes a big problem and you don't even enjoy um <laughs> what you paid for you know i know it, it sounds bad it's a, the way i said it the way i said it but it's, it's the actual truth because you you are literally paying for it you're paying you're paying for something right and you expect something in return and what you're getting in return is it 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 doesn't add up to your expectations so the way i see it is i i understand that the way i see it right i think that people should give gifts that's that's more of an honorable thing to do like I'm 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 marrying I'm I'm going to marry your daughter. I want to take yeah. your daughter's hand in marriage. So yep. you give a gift to the family um as respect. It's like as a sign of respect and many cultures do that. That's something we can all kind of agree on. Yeah. Uh I wouldn't really want to eradicate the cult, like that part of the culture completely like um only for one reason um because a lot of things are changing. We have a new generation. The old generation, they, a lot of them are dying now. You know, the, where the young people, the new generation, we are the people of the future. So we need something to hold on to because we we have to remember who we are. Also, we have a we have a culture that is respected, but the times have changed. You know, we we deal with money these days. We don't deal with cows. We don't deal with you know. We don't deal with cattle and. We don't deal with the like times have changed completely currency is different and I think that we need to adapt with the times and that that's a big problem because you see the younger people and the older people we can't really communicate there's like a big gap the young people will say something the older people disagree you know and the older people will say something and we just don't under the younger generation we don't understand the older generation you know and um that's another big thing communication you know because we the younger generation the older generation we both have different views with the dowry and another problem is the the older generation they don't see the younger people as the future that's something that is is very detrimental to us as south sudanese you know like we whenever this uh topic is brought up conversation about dowry you know it's an uproar You know, because people, you know, I've I've seen this before. I've seen people complain and stuff. You know, it's it's it's, it's a very touchy um uh conversation, but you have to think about it in this way. If it if it's actually working, yeah, we can continue. But if it's causing problems, you know, something needs to be fixed. And I think that it's it's causing problems um to our people because they're like. Uh, like you said before the younger people we just want to eradicate it we just want to like we just want to move on like why should i pay for someone that i love you know what i mean someone i want to marry want to start my life with why should i pay you know I mean? why should i en- why should i end up in debt <laughs> better say you know there's a lot of things to pay for especially here in australia and you know like the western countries you talk about america doesn't matter where you are you know you, we have bills to pay we have a lot of things you know the world revolves around money 
and why should I have another problem? You know, other uh, on top of the other things I have to deal with. So, I think that yeah, you know, we we should modify it. We should try to make it better for everybody. You know, make it better for the couple. Um, it, I think I personally think it's better for um, two couples to start their life together um, with assistance, right? Some other cultures they they give money to the couple to start their life off. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. You know, because who 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 is it for, anyways? Is is it is it for the parents? Is it for the uncles? Uh, like, uh, should I should I be should I be working so hard to give money to uncles? Should I be in debt, you know, to give money to all these people? Because th- this is the funny thing too. You will pay money, and then the the money is split. So this person will get a share. That person will get a share. Other person will get a share. You know what I mean? And then in the end, like I I don't know if everyone ends up with a good solid amount of money, right? To to do anything with. I mean, like it just—it—it it doesn't seem like something that's been thought out very well. It probably worked well in the past, but we've never really um, thought about now. Things have changed, you know. So that's—that's that's my stance on it. Um, bro, not to be toxic or anything, but on top of that, there's no refunds. <laughs> bro, things don't work. Bro, out, there's no refunds. You bro, had to insert his toxicity. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Let me just ask you boys this thing, this thing as well. Do you think it's disgraceful to the culture if you don't pay up? Do I think it's disgraceful, disgraceful to the culture if I don't pay, if we don't pay up? Hmm. I I can see why. I can see why um, it is kind of uh, disgraceful. This is something that we practiced for a very very long time, right? So, um, like, and you also have to think of why they, they, why, why it was made, for example, why someone has to pay, you know, is, yeah, pretty much the symbol is bringing something of value, right? Giving, giving something of value to receive something of value. And I, I understand that sort of, um, I, I understand that because it's like, and, you know, to bring this, um, I don't mean to be rude, you know what I mean, but it's just it, the way it is. Like to 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 bring up this example, you know, some people might take it the wrong way, but it's like, like just with purchasing anything, you know what I mean. When you put your money into it, money is it represents something valuable. So you you put value your money to get something valuable to receive something valuable in return. So I think that. Yeah, like I, I do think in a way it is disgraceful to the culture. Is some people are gonna be offended, you know. But in a way, yeah, it is. It is disgraceful. If if, it, if it's up to me, I don't really care. Like I'm that type of person. I, you know, like I could offend a few people, but if when it comes to the culture, it would be disgraceful. That's my opinion. Um, no, I don't think it's disgraceful. If anything, you're taking a justified stance against something that is not benefiting you, something that's crippling you even. 
Ah, okay. Hold on, hold on, hold on. So you, all right. That's a good point. All right, that's a good point. So this this is where it becomes. So you don't think it's disgraceful not to participate in in such a big part of the culture because you think it's not beneficial to you. And this is where I this is this is where I get a problem with a lot of a lot of black folks. Not to you as an individual. As an individual. Society. What society do you mean? as a whole. To, how, 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 community. Okay. Society as a whole. Tell, tell us on that. Talk to us on that. Okay. You have to understand that culture, like it's not always stagnant. It evolves over time. Things that people used to practice hundreds of years ago, we now know it's wrong and it has no place in our society. But it's just taking a, it's just taking a while longer for us as Africans to realize that because we're so prideful and our sense of our sense of identity is strongly tied to culture. So when people say we're going to change the culture, they feel like it's an attack on rather than it rather than it being an attack on the tradition, a lot of elders perceive it as an as an attack on our identity. Mm. Do you get me? Mm. And a lot of the reasons behind the diary system, right, and the way that it's being done all those things can't be applied to today's world, to put it simply. For example, um, when you pay back, back, like back at home, they had this idea, which is appropriate there, but not here, that it takes a whole village to raise a child. And that makes sense because back, back home, we lived in communal societies. Your uncle um, plays a role in, in bringing you up as much as your father does. Your father is off somewhere, your uncle sees you misbehaving in the village, he corrects you, lectures you, you know? If your mother is busy doing something, your auntie will come in and cook. So it makes sense back home that when you pay the dowry, your uncle would get some of that money because they contributed to bringing up this wonderful and virtuous woman that you're now going to marry. So it makes sense to symbolically reward him, right? But now, in today's society, fast forward now to Australia, we don't live in communal societies. We live in, as individuals in, in household units. The only person that has really played a role in raising me, two people, my mother and my father, for the most part, right? And I would think the same would apply to the woman that I'm going to marry here in Australia, who's of South Sudan origin. Her parents raised her. It makes no sense for me to pay money to her uncle who's back in the village in Sudan or in Khartoum to say thank you. Thank you for what? You haven't seen her. The last time we saw her was when she was a baby. The last time we saw her was when she was a baby. So a lot of the reasoning behind the diary system, it can't be applied to um, today's society. And that's just one component. We can, we, can, we, we can dissect all the several reasons behind the diary and we'll find I guarantee you, a lot of faults. Um, and so we are realizing it because we as young people who live in the West are at the forefront and we are bearing the full brunt of this counterproductive and toxic tradition. So if we take a stance and say, hey, you guys aren't noticing this, if anything, we are doing something admirable, not something disgraceful. Because as I said earlier, culture changes and the people that usually change the culture are young people. It's never the old. So I, yeah, to, to answer your question, I think it's something that's admirable, not disgraceful. John, I just got a question, right? 
do you think yeah. um we should like totally eradicate it or do you think we should come to um or should we compromise with the old like just come to a middle ground if you know um, what i mean yeah yeah i get you i get you um i gave the example earlier about south africa right that that sort of thing of regulating the diary system um and um and just making sure that it fits in with today's society that only works if you have a legal body to regulate and enforce the changes right so so if we are to change the diary system i think it has to come from the root it has to be done back home by politicians and the government they need to bring that change we can't do it here because you try to regulate uncles what will they tell you you're a little kid you know so we can't have it here we we can't have the middle ground here we can't have the reasonable updated approach so if we can't have that then we have to get rid of it altogether that's what i think so eradicate the diary system altogether <laughs> okay fair enough Fair enough. I guess. I guess, especially that everybody's dispersed in Western societies now. Nobody really can. Nobody really sees the value of that anymore. Um, yeah. But let's let's segue into uh, into another to another topic, and that is the the communication system within Sudanese cultures, the and the lack of affection, if you'd call it. That I just wanted to touch a bit on that. What what has been your experiences? in in Sudanese households particularly and what do you think about that uh I've been lucky enough to have like two awesome parents who were raised in you know raised in loving homes raised in Khartoum in city so they're a bit they're a bit more progressive and open um compared to like other South other South Sudanese parents and I know this because I would go into, um, I would visit my cousins and I would see that the way they operate is very different. So for me personally, my mother is very loving, very affectionate. Uh, my father is tough, but he's somebody who is just and fair. And he's somebody who's always shown us love and yeah, just shared his passion for African, for all things African with us. So for me, I think... Um, the affection in my household was there, but we could we could have definitely improved on the communication. Um, my father is like he's open to new ideas, but sometimes he does resist, and sometimes he does want to dictate how how everything plays out. So yeah, in my household, it it it, it could have been improved. Um, and overall, in the South Sudanese community, from what I hear from other people, then there needs to be a lot of improvement. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's yeah, damn well. How about you, Doc? Um, yeah. Now, my my um my experience was a bit different actually. I was raised with my I was raised from my mother, and um, yeah, I didn't have my father in my life very much for certain reason like i won't get too deep into it but yeah he my mom was the one that was raising um the family and in our household my mom had to work 
this was when I was younger, like uh, earlier years. Um, my mom would work and she would study. And I had my brothers and sisters in the house too. Um, we would come home after school. My sister had school too. She would cook. So she kind of played the role of my mother sometimes. But she would cook. She would do the um, things around the house and stuff. And us boys would, you know, we would do our thing also. And yeah, so we were missing that. Um, we were missing the father figure. So certain people had to take on the roles of the father and the mother and whatever, my sister, my brothers. And we, a lot of us kind of uh, taught ourselves in certain things we had to teach ourselves. Like my mom did the best that she could, but it's just hard being a single parent, um, trying to take care of everything. And I've, I've realized that a lot of South Sudanese, they go through the same thing. Like this is a, a normal thing to them. Um, some of us are, are are fortunate to have both parents and everything, and, and that's a blessing, you know. You know, it's a, it's a it's a it's a blessing, but a lot of the majority, I could say, especially in the diaspora, it, it's a normal thing just to grow up in a single parent household, just to have your mother pretty much taking care of everything, and um, they they will go through similar experiences as me. So their brothers or their sisters will have to take on the role, the role of the father, or the the sister will have to take the role of the mother. And the the ones that are left, the brothers or the the siblings that are left there to take care of themselves in a way, they 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 go out and they go out into the world and try to figure out things for themselves. And that's kind of my experience, as, um, a bit of my experience. I had to learn certain things on my own and had to take care of myself and that that kind of it, it can create a lot of things right like a lot of miscommunications people aren't really communicating in the house um the affection part um yeah i can see that that's that's a big thing in our community you know like a lot of people don't really we don't we don't show much affection it's just, i'm not saying that it's not in the culture Nah, it's, it's nothing to do with that, but it's just, um, I mean, it, yeah, in, in certain in certain cases, yes, we could we could say that it's part of the culture, but the the Sudanese, um, our people in general, like we've just been through a lot, like talk about the war and a lot of other things, you know. So it's kind of changed us as a people. A lot of us are just living in survival mode, you know, and that reflects in the families. And you see, like, the young people that are getting into, getting up to no good and all that. Like, there's a root for everything. It's all in the family structure and stuff. It's it's good when you have a solid family structure, someone you can learn from, someone you can look up, you can look up to and just observe. Because when you're a child, you, you observe everything, pretty much. You just, your brain sucks everything in like a sponge. And if you're not getting the care that you really need and the, the teachings that's necessary for you to be a um, just a brilliant man or, or woman. But yeah, we just have a lot of obstacles that are in front of us that aren't really addressed and communication is, is a big thing because no one really talks. You know, you, you don't know what your brother's up to, you know, your sister's doing, someone's doing this thing. You don't know what, you don't know what's happening. Like, and I find that a lot that happens a lot with um, Sudanese people. Like, 
no one really communicates with each other. You know, I, I could talk about it a lot more, but we'll get more into that. It does seem to be like a, a common pattern in in Sudanese households of you, both of you, as mentioned as well. I kind of feel it's sort of just residue from intergenerational trauma, like you mentioned, the war, and then that doing something to our parents and making them behave in a particular way. They have to be a lot tougher. And if you grow up in a one-parent household, typically the mother is looking after seven kids or more, and they have to be this strong woman. They can't be too damn emotional. They can't show too much affection because they've got to play both roles, right? So it's it's this... They've got to compartmentalize these two identities and then know when to manifest each one of them. So it's, it's quite a tough one. You're dealing with trauma, a lot of mental health that ha- that isn't addressed in, in the Sudanese community as well. And yeah, I just wanted to touch on the mental health part of how do you think Sudanese people conceptualize mental health and do you think they need to do a better job at it? Um, I think we need to change and shift the way that we think and talk about mental health because um and i know this has been said in so many forums and discussions on mental health but it's been said for a reason because there's there's such a lack of it and you know i think we just need to understand that it's okay to go through mental health um, problems and not to shy away from talking about it or addressing the issue head on because and like i even recall when i was young in egypt there was somebody who um lost their wife and they started to you know they started to sort of like go go inwards and and isolate themselves and started talking to themselves and going through all these mental health issues and People were like, some people, I kid you not, were like, you know, he's changed. Maybe the shaitan, we understand that he lost his wife, but to talk to yourself and, you know, to speak as if the devil is within you, it's not good. And the advice that, the, the thing that I was hearing was he needs to find God, come to the church, and most importantly, he needs to man up. This is not how men deal with this is not how men deal with grief, you know? Like don't be up in your corner. You know, like the kids need to see you strong. We understand you lost your wife, but you need to show strength. Lazim to kun goi, lazim to kun goi. And that's that's a thing that's always being repeated. Being strong, being strong and just always powering through. And I think that's the only thing we've known as Africans and that unwavering will and spirit to survive and just power through has worked it's gotten us through a lot of things like my father always says if khawajad go through a quarter of what we went through in, in life just a quarter these people will lose their minds you know <laughs> but 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 at the same time this thing that has gotten us through a lot of trials and tribulations and challenges can work against us you know and it's working it's working against us now when people are saying just be strong and just power through you know mm. um so what i would like to see happen and it's gradually happening in melbourne we have um a mental health we have a few mental health um prof- professionals who run workshops in denka 
learn in Arabic. And they try to change the conversation and the way that people look at mental health. But we just need to start talking about it more and start saying that it's okay for people to go through mental health issues and that they just need help. That's, right. uh, that's my take on it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's pretty much a, a trauma response as well. Like it, they, exactly. all, all, they suppress all these emotions and then they, a lot of people, problem with a lot of, with the stigma around mental health as well with is that they think there's prepackaged these boxes that you have to tick in order to say yes you've got a mental health issue or yes i've got anxiety but everybody experiences and expresses anxiety in very different ways it could be peculiar but it's still anxiety if you can describe that feeling saying hey some people shut down like you mentioned that man shut down right Shut shut down isolated himself some people dissociate some people's appetite shut down. It's all different stress responses, but everybody thinks, oh no, if I'm if I'm not irritated or if I'm not having palpitations, that's not anxiety. It's, it's, it's really, really bizarre to me, especially in African communities. They, like you said, they're told that guy to man up, right? And there's, this, there's actually this beautiful story in Botswana of a, a Botswanian psychiatrist who created the a bench, he literally created a bench and he separated it and it was a bench for where people can talk. And he got he got elders and he did it in a beautiful way because he knew he got the he got elders of the of the of of the village or wherever and he got them and he got them there and people w- would be able to come there and just have a discussion, just talk about their problems. And he he created basically the a form of CBT people who can just come and talk to these elders like that. And this man saved lives, reduced suicides, all these things, just by having people talk on the bench. It was an incredible story. You should read on it. But yeah, there, there definitely needs to be a shift in in the, in the discussion around mental health, and especially in the Sudanese community. You know, there's this view of um, like of men being weak. You know, of uh, for them to voice the the problems they're going through and stuff like. I I agree that yeah you shouldn't tell everyone what you're going through. If if you're going through a rough time, you shouldn't just voice that out to everybody. But everyone should have at least one person they can tell something to. Like at least w- when they're going through a very a, a a chaotic a chaotic time in their life where they can do something stupid. You know, you need at least someone one person you can talk to. But you know we have this view especially us men like we don't want to be weak you know you don't want you don't want to look weak and you don't want to be weak you know you have this um you as men we have to go out and conquer we have to go we have to go get things we have to go um we're like hunters right a man has to go out and hunt he has to go get his bread has to go get his food has to go get his stuff has to always be tough have to always, you have to always show that you're strong and that's not a, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but I guess too much of everything is um is bad because we're human in the end. You know, not everyone is Superman. Everybody has bad days. Everybody has problems that they're going through, right? And people are trying to make their lives better. Like I, I knew this guy, right? Um, this guy ended up committing suicide, right? But this this is. You would never know. You would never know at all. He was a very happy guy. Always had good things to say. Always was always joking. You know, was um, just a happy person. Like you, you wouldn't think 
he he would do what he ended up doing. But this guy, right? Um we ended up hearing we ended up hearing that this uh I'm not going to go too deep onto it, but pretty much um he he was a good guy, a person you can go to um to have a good time, to laugh and if you see him, if you speak to him, you'll be happy when just talking to the guy cuz always had a um upbeat and high spirit. But then he ended up um committing suicide. And this is what he did. He 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 had a family, he had a he had um like uh three children. He had a wife. He ended up killing them. His children, all of them. He ended up killing his wife also. And then he ended up committing suicide. And when I found out that information, I was shocked. Like I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, "But how? You know, it, it didn't, it didn't sound real." And you know, this is this is the reality of a lot of people. They have a lot of issues. You know, they have a lot of problems that they just keep bottled up inside because they believe they have to be tough. They have to always look tough. They have to be tough to their family. They gotta be, you know. Yes, and you should be tough. You know, you should be strong. But if you're going through like hard times yeah you need you need to voice that out you need to you need to find a way to let that out you know that's why people go to the gym that's why people work out you know like gym and doing other things you know it helps you release stress but as men like there's a lot of pressure i've seen and i've heard stories and you know, we've all had our own experiences too but south, south sudanese we are very very tough people the, the guy that that killed himself he was south sudanese you know what i mean he was south. He was south to the knee. Huh? Is this in Sydney? No, this was this was in Khartoum, bro. I, w- I went to Khartoum. This because uh, when I went back home, and th- this is back home, bro. You know what I mean? This is back home. But there's people who are going through stuff like worldwide, man. Like because the stuff that we've seen, like I know people that it's like the war and stuff, and not just the war too. Like just. People have seen stuff who have been through hell, like, ever since they, they were young. And they've just been going, you know, you always see them happy, you know, you always see them. Some people, you know, they have their whole family. I, I know a guy, too, that, man, he, he his, his mother, father passed away when he was young. He's got, like, he's got no one, man. He's only got a few people. He's here in Australia, too. He's this guy that's here in Australia. Like, most of his family passed away and everything. And the happiest person you've seen in the world, man. The happiest person you like you ever meet like always has good things to say to you blah blah like and you can see that he's genuinely happy you know what i mean but i see that we're like south sudanese we're going through like as a people there's a lot of things that need to be addressed like we we always bottle things up inside because a lot of us are tough and like you said before if you know like if khawajat yeah Though to go through the certain things that we find normal, you know, the clocking out. Yeah, man, <laughs> it's over. You know what I mean? But for us, I think another problem is that we think that the traumas that we went through is normal. It's a normal thing. Just like I said with the um, single parent households, I used to think it was a normal thing. You know, people ask me questions even in school and whatever, like. They'll be like, how is it like, you know, not having a father around? I'm like, oh, it's all right. Like, back then, I didn't really, I didn't really see a problem with it. I just thought it was normal. And I think, um, 
I think it's the same thing with mental health. There's certain things that we believe and we think that is normal until someone actually um, t- like talks to us about it. You know, and that's when we start to realize, oh, wow, I actually have a problem that I need to deal with. And I think, again, communication is key, you know. No one really wants to look weak. But if we could find a way to um, to uh, have a dialogue about this and for it to be effective, you know, because you said, you know, this is everyone has heard about this. Like we always hear that. um yeah, you should you should seek help. You know, you should go and seek help if you need it and stuff. Everyone has heard that. But still to this day, you know, nothing is really done about it. And I just think that people think that it's a normal thing. It is, you know. So if we can um find a way to make people understand that it's not normal, you know, and to actually bring the bring it out to the light, the things that are hidden, you know, there will be progress normalizing the conversation around mental health is very important i think i have never heard of any sudanese person go and see a psychotherapist ever i still haven't heard it. maybe you have john i'm not sure but i've never heard of it. it's happening here in melbourne it's uh finally happening gradually beginning to happen yeah yeah but even even it's the same deal with i think the broader afro afro culture it's not a thing like like it they are hardly. I was speaking to one of the one a lady who is a actually one. She's a mental health practitioner and a, she's Botswanan, and she was telling me that in Africa there are very 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 few mental health practitioners, very few psychiatrists, very few because they just don't think it's it's real. They just don't value it as as such. But even now, I think it's starting to become more more of a conversation in 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 places like Melbourne. You said right, which is which is yeah, it. Yeah. Which is, which is a good thing, yeah. Do you think our current culture perpetuates the stigma against mental health, or what do you? What are your thoughts? Yes, I do, because um, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's culture per se, or if or if it's just how people operate within within our group, within our South Sudanese community, like. There's nothing in culture that specifically advises against opening up to people about your problems, you know? I think it's just it's just the way that people develop to operate over time. Like, you always hear, like, in some households, they're like, laugh, you know? Don't say you're going through such and such issue. It'll bring, it'll bring a, um, it'll put our family name in a bad light, you know? So I don't know if it's culture per se or people just wanting to safeguard their family name and image. Um, yeah, so I just think the way that we operate and the way that we think about mental health needs to change. I don't, I don't know too much about specific traditions within South Sudanese, within the South Sudanese community that says, right. you know. How about that? Um, I think it was last year with the whole the whole commotion around the Sudanese rape culture and the women finally coming out and and being able to voice what actually happened to them and that being able to have that safe space and having surprisingly there were actual um, elders who came into their support and said this is actually wrong. Do you think that had, that has any sort of influence in how we navigate mental health within our within our communities? 
I think something like what happened with, you know, the girls coming out and having elders supporting them, that is unheard of. It's never happened before. Mm. And I think it will open the door for conversations around mental health. So I think it, yeah, it will do that. Yeah, I thought that was like a major breakthrough. I never, ever expected that. But there, there were some men who came out and came and tried to gaslight a lot of them. And tried yeah. to say, which was... I'm not surprised. Which is, yeah. It's... It's nothing, it's like nothing that I've ever seen before, you know? And I supported it and so did a lot of uncles. Yeah. yeah. What, what's the solution? How do we progress from there? Because you'd have to go back and back home and change a lot of things, a lot of the way we operate in our, in our society there. You can't have these older men who are 30 years older than a woman marrying women anymore, right? You'd have to go and change a lot of these child brides, yeah. Is that what you're yeah, yeah, them child brides. Nah, like honestly, I would, I would honestly, yeah, I would change that too. Um, but that that's something that happens more in the countries, eh? I don't think it happens much in the cities. Like, you know, you know what I mean. Like in the villages and stuff. Yeah, yeah. You, you find that more, and it, it does have to be changed, like. I, the way I see it, things are starting to change because the times are re- the times are changing, and plus a lot of our people are spread out across the world. We all spread out. Um, you know, there's a lot of us here in Australia, big Sudanese community. Have some in Melbourne, uh, Sydney, even Brizzy, um, uh, Western Australia too. We got a lot in Australia. America has a lot. Um, you have some in Europe. You have um, South Sudanese in um, England, uh, Sweden, like. We're spread out around the world, and you know the culture is is kind of changing because we have a it's like different branches if you know what I mean. And we're all yeah. trying to kind of coming together and creating something new. So I see that for like for those girls to voice uh, their like to voice their experience, and um, it's, it's just showing that new things are coming. You know, you're gonna hear more of this. Like you're gonna hear more people. Um, just voicing their experiences, not not just regarding the traumas that they've been through or just the negative things they've experienced, but there's also things that need to be changed and um there's also positive things too that you know we're learning from our own experiences, having a different experience here in, in, in Australia, you know, rather than in Sudan or anywhere else and you know where that's that's something good to kind of um, we can kind of bring together and it will, con- it will contribute to our community as a whole. So, yeah, like I, I would change the laws, but we don't have like th- that that power. It, it demands like to have that power, amount of power. It demands a lot of people to stand together and to really be um, of, of like of, of one of one opinion, if you know what I mean, and just to fight for one cause. And that that's a tough thing to do. Yeah. But, but that's not happening. That's the thing. Yeah. The question is how. Yeah, that's that. You know, like back home, it usually happens through the government enforcing it by law and by authority. Right? Here, we obviously don't have that. Um, you have moments every now and then where the where the Australian federal government would chime in and say, hey, like with the Lebanese community or the Arab Islamic community, they actually outlawed um, having child, having um, 
multiple wives and child brides, you know. Yeah. But with things like this, it's a bit tricky for the Australian government to dive in and regulate. So it's just up to us to be like, hey, let's sit down with the elders. And it's happened before, though. Like, what's her name? Nyadol Nyon, the uh, South Sudanese uh, lawyer and intellectual. She had, she had like a panel discussion that was on SBS. And yes. then following that, they sat down with the elders, the, the community leaders here in Melbourne. And they tried from an intellectual standpoint. They tried from, a, from an economic standpoint to say, hey, this is not, this is not productive, you know? That didn't work. From every angle, there was no convincing these uncles. So now, the next step would be by fire, by force. <laughs> Just take a stance. I guess, I guess that's what it is. Is The thing with us... Um, it could us, you know? It, we, we always rely, like, we always rely on them to kind of do something about it, you know, like uncles or whatever, and you get resistance. Yeah. And, like... It's just not gonna work. Like the the way the way I see it, um, we have a new sort of uh, group of young people these days that um, they they are kind of more militant. <laughs> and like, yeah. you know, I see like there's there's certain things that it, it does. It, it you need to take it. It needs to be take the approach needs to be taken differently. If it hasn't been working in the past, we need to take a different approach. And if people aren't listening. Right, say you're knocking in the door and they don't want to open. You're gonna break that door down, and I, I that, that's the way I see with the young people. Is we're not we're not like the people. Um, we're not like the older generation. Like we have a lot of history to kind of look back on, and to kind of uh, judge where things are going and where things could go. And uh, if they're not listening, if you know what I mean, like there's a lot of things we are divided in, and it's like. It's it's tough, man. But that's something that should definitely be changed. I don't think we should rely on the Australian government to do anything about it. Like they're not. Uh, it's not really their problem. Let's wrap up on a good note here. What are your What are your favorite things about the about the Sudanese Sudanese culture? Um, or just the broader Afro culture? This applies to both the South Sudanese community and the broader um, African community. So the way that we all look after one another. If one person is going through something, we all come together, pitch in to help. That's one thing I really love. Um, and it plays out in a lot of ways. But one thing that I witnessed was when my grandmother passed away in 2018, um, my house was just filled with family members, people that attended our church, you name it. They were just there supporting my mother through her mourning and her grieving. Um, you know, when we had the memorial service, all the aunties were cooking, all the uncles were pitching in money, you know, um, and we all just came together. Um, and we have a great way of supporting one another. That's what I really love. We, we have that. I know we live in Australia, but we still have that that communal structure. Like we all we all support one another. So that's one thing I really love. Uh, the second thing would have to be the food, of course. Food. <laughs> what's uh, what's your favorite? My, every, uh, my favorite is gima. 
and full gima full and um and khudra yeah i like khudra mm. khudra with uh, rijla so mm. when they cook the khudra with um no no rijla baladas malish when they cook the what's rijla in english rijla is spinach when they cook spinach with lettuce with lentils sorry when they cook those two together with all the spices and the flavoring game over and of course shaya i love shaya um so yeah the food uh what's your favorite bit in outfit in terms of food yeah i, I, I like i like aras man i like aras um i like full you know the black shaya you know um yeah man uh, you know with okra my mom used to make a lot of okra and stuff you know yeah yeah man nah, it's nice yeah i like the mix too you know sometimes when we get a bit of like um because my household it was just always very mixed i had a bit of ethiopian food had it was my auntie was like habash and stuff i had um yeah man so we eat we would eat um like kisra and stuff a bit of um habash stuff and all that but mainly yeah like others i like others you know i love food but something i like about our culture uh i like the generosity we are we are just some generous people man like you can go to a south sudanese person's house they will take care of you man they make sure you have you know you always have always food there there's a drink you know what i mean they overfeed you you know you don't leave hungry and if you're staying over you sleep in the person's bed you know what i mean like that sort of generosity like you know i i i get a lot of people kind of praising um the south sudanese community in that other africans too just other people in general they know that when they go to a south sudanese person's house they're going to take care of you you know we're very very generous people and we give freely that's that's something i i like about our people we're not a lot of us aren't really i say a lot you know um there's some there's other exceptions but a lot of us you know we're not we're not so materialistic yeah you know? that's a good thing to have yeah yeah now my my favorite is uh wega um kudra and a lot of um, I like I like wega with injera a lot of ethiopian influence and kenyan influence food in in there as well i think the culture is very rich in 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 a lot of in a lot of ways but the you, like John you guys touched on it as well the communal aspect of it as well which i think is just an an african thing where we've got that collectivist mindset which is which is always good you know that saying ubuntu you know i am because we are is is a very beautiful i think encapsulates a lot of of the sudanese and african culture so you know as toxic as the dowry process is <laughs> i must say i like the these girls as well just the way that they carry themselves you know all oh, right all right yeah. yeah apparently that's changing i don't know what uh, what do you mean it's changing and what do you what do you mean the way they carry themselves like it goes back to that thing of generosity and taking care of your people like I remember I was um at uni and I ran into this pseudo girl and she could tell that I was this distressed you know I was in my first year I was all over the place and she just reached out and said al mushkila you know like what's what's the problem you need help and I just told her like oh you know 
this uni thing is difficult. I think I'm going to drop out. And she's like, what are you having difficulty with? She, she, she was studying like her, like her course fell under my discipline. So a lot of the things that we studied overlapped and she's like, you know what? I'll help you. I'm in my third year. She'd come to the library, help me. Um, I sort of like sprained my ankle and I couldn't play ball or sports. And I couldn't get that frustration out. She introduced me to um, poetry and journaling my thoughts. Mm. Just that sort of thing. You know, like they go the extra mile and there's care. Yeah. But that was in like, what, 20, 2014, 2013. But from what I hear, the generation behind us, mm. a lot of that is changing. And there's a lot of like, what would you call it? Like bad I don't want to swear, but like, you know, like bad bitch, you know, like that bad bitch mentality. <laughs> I don't have time for men. You know, I don't have time to be gentle, that sort of thing. But I don't know. I don't know if it's Alfred. Well, my last words would be for people, get to, for them to get to know themselves. You know what I mean? Um, we all sort of different in our own ways. You know, we all go through uh, challenges and everything. But once once you start to learn your weaknesses and strengths, it can help you out in making moves and everything. And especially for our young people, especially the young South Sudanese and all there, out, out there, very strong people. Um, so I think that being in a, another country, another foreign country, and having to adapt um, a new way of doing things is very tough. It's not, very, it's not that easy, actually. We just need to get, get to know ourselves, especially the young people. We've been speaking for quite some time now. Thank you, John, Mashar, Bidet, Doc. Really appreciate this discussion. It's been very productive.